Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Vivian Nunes. Washington restricts major US investors from putting money into some Chinese technologies deemed a national security risk. We'll assess what the move will mean for the world's two biggest economies. After losing billions of dollars from its streaming service, Disney is under pressure. We'll hear what its latest financial results reveal. And Sugarman singer Sixto Rodriguez has died aged 81. We hear from a film producer who made a documentary of his life. He was a sort of Latino Bob Dylan. You know, he wrote and performed very sort of gritty, urban, quite political music. Sort of folky, you know. Those stories coming up across the next half hour. But we start today in Washington, where President Biden has issued an executive order that will prohibit U.S. investment in sensitive technology in China. Starting next year, the White House will require venture capital and private equity firms to flag their planned investments to the government, some of which will be prevented on national security grounds. Democrat Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy is a member of the House Select Committee on China, and he's been speaking to the BBC. I think that this is exactly what we need to make sure that not only our dollars, but also potential technical expertise and know-how don't get into the wrong hands. What I mean by that is that uh, we have investigated some of these firms, and what we've found is that they are invested in state-owned enterprises or other companies in China that unfortunately are affiliated with CCP entities that are developing hypersonic missile programs. Uh, They're developing their nuclear programs. They're helping with developing uh, facial uh, recognition and AI software to repress the Uyghurs. So we don't want to be invested in those types of programs that harm our interests or our values. Republican Congressman Darren LaHood also sits on the House Select Committee focused on China. In a rare moment of bipartisan agreement, he welcomed the executive order and he too has been speaking to the BBC. I think we have to come to the realization China has a plan to replace the United States, and they're working at it every single day. And I don't say that to scare people, but they want to beat us technologically, militarily, economically, and diplomatically. And so we have to focus on how do we win that strategic competition. And so how you do that is, I think it's going to be one on the economic front. So how will the executive order limiting US capital from being invested in specific targeted industries impact the wider Chinese economy? I asked Dr Hong Ru, a visiting associate professor at MIT Sloan School and an associate professor of banking and finance at Singapore's Nanyang Business School. I think this is quite significant in terms of the Chinese economy and its impact on the U.S. economy. We all know that the Chinese economy has experienced challenges in its 
post-COVID recovery. And there are many reasons for this. And one major reason is that the export activities in China has been declining, especially with the U.S. So to put it in perspective, Mexico has recently surpassed China as the U.S. number one trading partner. So while these new sanctions, U.S. investments in China since technology might not directly affect the integrity of Chinese export volume, but considering these sanctions are anticipated to be specific rather than broad, they could exacerbate the already strained the U.S. and China relationships, and this might invite retaliation from China, which would further dampening. The trading activities and potentially slowing Chinese economic bounce back. So the goal here is to screen and sometimes prevent American investment, American money, funneling towards these sensitive technologies and and Chinese companies developing them. I mean, Washington always frames this as a national security issue, not so much an economic issue. How much credit does Beijing give that argument? So first of all, I think part of these sanctions are about the security. The U.S. and China dynamics have been turbulent for a while, so I think Beijing definitely will respond, and they will probably retaliate in some way. So that will hurt the already tenuous relationship between U.S. and China further. But on an optimistic note, I generally hope both nations can identify a middle ground and can address these differences. We've already seen China restrict the export of some raw materials that are used to produce semiconductors. Is that、mm-hmm. the kind of retaliation that we could see potentially from Beijing over this move from Washington? China is the major provider of many. Important raw materials. So, for example, the rare earth elements and arsenic metal exports. I will say it's definitely on the table. So, we've talked about the potential negative impacts this move might have on China's economy, which we know is already struggling. What about on the U.S. economy? Could this backfire at all for President Biden? I think it will. So, recall that. U.S. and China were the world's largest bilateral trading partners, which means that they're important to each other. Forty percent of the inputs from China to U.S. consist of consumer goods like clothing and shoes. So any significant reduction in these inputs might strain U.S. consumers, especially in the current inflationary environment. And it's also worth noting that. Sixty percent of the export from China to U.S. are actually raw materials and intermediate goods. So, in other words, many U.S. businesses source their production inputs from China. So, the intensifying tensions between these two countries could eventually burden U.S. firms and backfire. So, this is a difficult balancing act for President Biden, isn't、mm-hmm. it? Because on the one hand, he's concerned about. National security considerations and what China might do with this technology. On the other、mm-hmm. hand, he wants to maintain that very strong economic relationship between the two countries. Yes, this is a very difficult situation. I would say, I expect these sanctions, this U.S. investment in the sensitive technologies in China, should be very specific and tailored rather than the full-scale sanction. 
Dr Hong Ru speaking to me from Boston. Well, let's stay on China and the struggles its economy is facing because consumer prices there declined in July for the first time in more than two years. Analysts say this increases pressure on Beijing to revive demand with some kind of stimulus measures. Our China correspondent Stephen McDonnell has sent this report from Beijing. The next station is... The bustling scene on Beijing's vast underground train network is exactly what you'd expect for a modern city of more than 20 million people. It's as if COVID never happened. At face value, this would seem to show an economy rebounding strongly. Well, analysts are telling us that's not actually the case. The crowded walkways leading from stations to shopping centres belie the fact that consumer spending, especially on big-ticket items, has been quite weak here. People are nervous about job security or about the value of their homes, so they're saving more. Because of the three years of the pandemic, most people don't have as much money to spare to even buy certain foods, drinks and clothes. Our incomes are not as stable. A woman running a shop selling pretty cheap pastries says she too is feeling the pressure. We don't have customers like we did before. People are buying less. We all know what the economy is like now. Everyone is spending money on what's important. Less spending and less confidence is pushing down prices on many products. In one way, that may sound good, but there are fears the country could be heading into a period of deflation with stalled business investment. Harry Murphy-Cruz is an economist at Moody's Analytics, specialising in China. If you're a household, you're thinking of buying a couch, well, if you think prices are going to keep falling, then you've got no incentive to buy it this month, but rather hold off to next month. But because you've held off, that's pinching retailers, they start to cut their prices already, and you sort of entrench this cycle that's incredibly difficult to break. Real estate oversupply has driven down the value of family homes hitting the biggest investment of ordinary people. The government doesn't want to make the situation worse, so it's been loath to pump more money into propping up developers. But it needs a solution. Again, Harry Murphy-Cruz. There's certainly more stimulus that's going to be needed to actually kickstart the economy. And realistically, one of the key challenges for Chinese households is that property sector. So while that's still struggling, household spending is going to, to really crawl home renovation support, tourism stimulus and means to encourage more electric car sales are all on the table. Ultimately, though, it might just be a matter of waiting. If the global economy picks up next year, this will drive international demand for the stuff China makes. A shot in the arm for production here will then feed back into global growth. So maybe China's policymakers will just try to ride out the next six months in the hope of better times ahead. Our China correspondent Stephen McDonnell reporting there and listening to that is Susan Schmidt. She's head of public equity at the State of Wisconsin Investment Board and she joins the program now. Thanks so much for joining World Business Report again, Susan. We were just hearing in that package uh, about Chinese deflation. What does it mean for the global economy? Well, China is a big part of the global economy. So investors in the U.S. are watching that very closely. We count on the Chinese economy to be an extra stimulus as we're trying to revive 
global economy, and particularly the economy here in the U.S., is we're trying to get back to a normal range and get inflation down. China's stalling and having problems getting their economy back on track ripples through all of the countries, but particularly their big trading partners, and that would mean the U.S. So investors here are keenly attuned to that, and you're going to start hearing those investors ask questions of company managements that are those companies here at based in the U.S. that are using those Chinese goods to try and understand better what that means and the impact on the pricing that it will have for those U.S. companies. And we know the Chinese government will want to turn around this weak consumer demand. What kind of levers does it have at its disposal? This is one of the hardest things to turn around. Deflation is very tricky. And that's because the central bank's main tool is interest rates. And to stimulate an economy, you want to lower interest rates to incent investment. However, in a deflationary environment, your economy is slowing and you can't incent investment because people know that prices will continue to drop. They're worried about profitability because spending has pulled back. And so businesses don't spend in their enterprise anymore. So it's very hard to push things forward. The Chinese government's well aware of this. Chinese government's advantage over, say, the government of the UK or the US is that they can do a lot of funding and inject stimulus into the economy. Their issue right now, and a problem and a fine line they have to walk, is how to inject that stimulus without overheating an area, as has happened with their real estate market. Okay, well, thank you for that, Susan. Stay with us. We're going to come back to you later in the program. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. When my son and I moved in here, it wasn't as warm as we hoped. Ah! Hey, I'm going to light a vanilla candle, and it's going to be a game changer. And after midnight, the house comes alive. This place is haunted! A trailer there for the Disney film Haunted Mansion, currently in cinemas. The big budget blockbuster has so far disappointed at the box office, and that's worrying for Disney. The entertainment giant has also lost more than $11 billion from its streaming service since 2019. So how is the company doing today? Disney revealed its latest financial results on Wednesday. And to discuss what they tell us, I'm joined by Rick Minares, Senior Analyst at The Motley Fool. Thanks so much for joining us, Rick. Now, Disney had flagged that the big focus over the past quarter would be cutting costs. Have they managed to achieve that? Yes. I mean, they're, they're making headway in that. Just like the Haunted Mansion is just this house of haunted ghosts. They have a lot of haunted costs and expenses. <laughs> And uh, in this case, uh, they did shave the cost basically for their streaming services, which has been the Disney Plus, uh, Hulu, and ESPN Plus, which has basically been a drag on their bottom line. Their loss is still losing money, but it lost half as much money. Uh, you know, the operating loss was basically half a million as opposed to a full billion. Sorry, half a billion versus a full billion uh, as it's been, uh, you know, the year before. So it is making some headway on that. It's had some layoffs, unfortunately. Uh, it is cutting costs, but again, Iger's his, his the end of his timeline to get that done is by the end of fiscal 2024. So he has another uh, 15, 16 months to get that done. Uh, but yeah, they are cutting costs. Unfortunately, growth revenue growth isn't happening, but they are going through on that with with making things uh, you know easier on the bottom line for the company. You mentioned the CEO Bob Iger. Now this is his second time running Disney. There's obviously a lot of pressure on him. What's the assessment of his performance so far? Do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think he came in thought that it would be like a quick cleanup job, uh, but it's almost like when when you walk into a house and you you know you're a cleaning service, you go, no, this has to be a deep cleaning. I need four years to clean this up, uh, and thankfully the board gave it to him. Uh, I mean, he was great the first time around. This time around, he's walking in a different environment, uh, uh, streaming uh, the, the decline of linear television, uh, uh, the fact that the theme parks aren't as easy to get going as they were before. Uh, people aren't going to movies as much, at least not his movies uh so there's a lot of things happening at disney i think he's the right person for the job but i think uh, he's starting to realize that it's time to roll up his sleeves and and, and you know do a little more heavy work uh than just his presence alone yeah and so much focus on the streaming service disney plus it hasn't done well over recent years but what's the latest on those subscriber numbers yeah, so subscriber growth—it's been pretty stagnant. Uh, you, if you take away the hot star, the Disney hot star, it's, it's business in, in India, which is uh, has a lot of subscribers, but they all pay you know about sixty cents uh, US uh, per 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 user, so it, it doesn't necessarily move the needle. Uh, the rest of it, Disney's domestically business and international, including the UK and other areas, uh, it's been pretty flat lately. And I think, uh, but they're raising prices. They did announce after the earnings call. Uh, that Disney Plus, at least in the U.S., which went from seven ninety nine a month to ten ninety nine a month late last year, come October is going to thirteen ninety nine. So they're still increasing prices for the ad free version of the service, uh, hoping to get more people on the ad supported version. Uh, so yeah, it's it's generating more revenue. It's one of the businesses that actually grew year over year at Disney as far as revenue goes. Um, and it's good to see the cost start to come under control. Uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely not growing as quickly as as investors would like. All right, Rick Minar is there. Thank you so much for all that analysis on Disney. Susan Smith is still there with us. Susan, what do investors make of those latest results? Investors are taking that quite positively. So aftermarket trading has shown the Disney shares up about 6%. Investors are really listening to what Bob Iger is saying. Remember that he's got a proven track record and investors have a lot of confidence with him at the helm. So his comments and proof that they've been cutting costs, the fact that streaming costs have gone down and the loss was only half a billion, not the full billion that was expected and that just happened in the last quarter. Investors are taking a lot of confidence from this. And I also think that Bob Iger's statements on the call as Disney discusses what's happening with their business were very positively received as he said that he thinks he can make that 2024 target reducing $5.5 billion in costs. And not only can he make it, but he can exceed it. And so I think investors are taking a lot of comfort from that. And there's a lot of responsibility and pressure on this man at the moment. Thanks so much, Susan. Susan Smith there with that analysis on Disney after those latest results were released. I'm joined in the studio now by the BBC's Barbara George. She's been looking at some of the day's other business stories. And Barbara, former President Donald Trump has been in the headlines again, this time related to Twitter. What's this about? Well, a US consul who was investigating Donald Trump obtained a search warrant for the former president's Twitter account in January and the social media platform delayed complying. This has all been revealed in a court filing on Wednesday. The the delay in compliance prompted a federal judge to hold Twitter in contempt and fine it $350,000. $350,000 probably won't hurt Twitter or X that much. Thank you for that. Also... There's been a run on hoodies, windsheeters you might call them, jumpers, depending where you are, on a Polynesian island. Why is that? 
So correct, there's been a rush for warm clothing in the Pacific island nation of Tonga as it experiences an unusually cold winter driven by the El Nino weather phenomenon. So some store owners have said hoodies, sweatshirts have completely sold out. There's also been a surge in demand for heaters, electric kettles and blankets. And winter temperatures in Tonga are usually between 18 and 21 degrees Celsius. But but at the end of July, they dropped to 9.3 degrees. So very cold for them. (laughs) Comparatively balmy, though. Thank you very much, Barbara, for those business updates. Have a listen to this. Sugar Man, the iconic song by the Mexican-American musician Sixto Rodriguez. The singer and guitarist has died aged 81. Born in Detroit, Mr Rodriguez failed to achieve commercial success in the US, but years later his music developed a cult following overseas. That musical rebirth was a subject of a documentary called Searching for Sugar Man, which won an Oscar. The film's producer, Simon Chin, told me more about Sixto Rodriguez's story. Rodriguez was an an, an unusual performer for the late 60s, which is when he was discovered by two very prominent Motown producers in Detroit, uh, in the sense that they thought that he was a sort of Latino Bob Dylan. You know, he wrote and performed very sort of gritty, urban, quite political music, sort of folky, you know. And these two producers thought they had discovered literally the next Dylan, they thought he was going to be absolutely huge. They were completely mesmerized by his music. And they recorded two albums, the only two albums he'd ever made, um, that they released at the very end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. Both of them were expected to do massive business, and both of them completely tanked. So Rodriguez, you know, who had high hopes for a career in music, sort of disappeared back into obscurity in Detroit. Um, he worked on construction sites doing heavy labor for maybe 20 years. And in the kind of intervening period, completely unbeknownst to him, his music found its way into apartheid South Africa which was pretty much at that time cut off from the world. I wanted to ask you about that. Why do you think the, the albums were commercial flops in the US? And then why did they find such a receptive audience in South Africa? I just don't think the American market was ready for a singer like Rodriguez. He didn't fit into any of the kind of neat categories that is often required of of popular performers and artists in the U.S. music business. He was a Latino urban folk singer. That that just didn't compute at the time. He was also someone who sort of was incredibly humble to the point of like painful shyness. He used to turn his back on the audience when he performed sometimes, which of course I think through today's eyes you might sort of see as charming and authentic. People couldn't make him out, but his music was completely mesmerizing. It was really, really extraordinary. So I think that's what that these producers thought would sort of transcend and cut through, but it didn't. In South Africa, however, at that time, he gained a real following, a kind of cult following among liberal white South Africans who were who were opposed to the apartheid system, many of whom were conscripts fighting for the South African army against liberation armies around Southern Africa. And weren't happy about the fact and and you know rather like vietnam his music became 
anthemic sort of protest music for them. You found two very big fans of Rodriguez in South Africa and made a film about their tracking down of Rodriguez. Tell us how that came about. Well, I, t- I should make it very clear that the director of the film was a young director called Malik Benjalul, who sadly passed away a year after the film won an Oscar. Uh, Malik himself had found this story. He was he traveled the world. He'd never made a film longer than about five minutes. And he was looking for, for amazing stories. And he found this story and thought it was better than a five-minute segment in a magazine show and sort of started to make a longer documentary about it. And went around, got a little, rustled up a little bit of money, um, started making the film, and then, you know, um, at a certain point, ran out of money, um, carried on in a very uncompromising fashion, making the film in his own way, with literally no help, no support, uh, and then until he kind of couldn't couldn't get any further. And at that point, he, he, he sort of reached out to me. I, I had made a film... I'd produced a film called Man on Wire, which had won an Oscar in 2008, and he had been inspired by that film. And I met him, and he had this sort of incredibly sort of winning, kind of guileless charm about him. Uh, his incredible enthusiasm. He told me he thought his film was going to, you know, he found the best story ever. He thought he thought, thought it was going to win an Oscar, which I thought was a little bit, uh, a little bit much. The film you made did go on to win an Academy Award. It also brought about a resurgence in Sixto Rodriguez's popularity. Tell us what it did for his career at that time. Part of the the story of the film in the film is that he had this amazing sort of third act, which is that he was discovered by two South Africans who brought him to South Africa and to, to, to show him that he was famous, that he had this huge audience in South Africa and he went on tour you know, uh, to, you know, he's playing thousand seaters, you know, m- many thousand seaters. And he was completely blown away by that. And, but actually, you know, in a way that there was a, there was a fourth act, you know, the fourth act was, yeah, he had this kind of global success after the film, um, as a result of the film, as a result of the fact that people were so bowled away by his story. Film producer Simon Chin speaking to me there about the death of musician Sixto Rodriguez, who has died aged 81. And we're going to hear some of Sixto's music in a moment, but we've got time for one last update with the BBC's Barbara George, who is still here with me in the studio. And Barbara, we've been following the military coup in Niger uh, just about every day over the past week or so on the BBC World Service. And today, a coup leader met with a West African leader. Tell us about that. Yes, so Nigeria's former central bank governor has met with Niger's military coup leader general on Wednesday in Niamey, the country's capital. This is all in a bid to mediate the crisis in the country following the coup that ousted President Mohamed Bazoum last month. This is the first delegation the coup leader is meeting personally, having shunned several envoys, including Nigeria's religious leader. The former Emer revealed that he has spoken to General Chishani and will deliver a message to the ECOWAS chair and Nigerian President Bola Tinubu. All right, Barbara George, thank you so much for all of those updates. That brings us to the end of this edition of World Business Report. Let's finish on some of that famous track, Sugar Man, by Sixto Rodriguez. Sugar man, cause I'm